Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we're beginning our coverage of Wolfe's first novel, Operation Ares, which was published in 1970. It's also our first crack at covering a novel, and so I'm very excited. But because it's a novel, we're going to do things a little differently than when we cover a short story. For Operation Ares, we'll recap two chapters per episode, and at the end of each episode, we'll discuss some of the material in those chapters. And then we'll have a sixth episode dedicated to discussing the work as a whole, and I'm very excited that Wolf scholar Mark Aramini is going to join us for that. But before we begin our recap, Brandon, I think we should talk a little about the publication history of this novel. Yeah, absolutely. Operationaries is a novel, and it's originally expanded from a short story that's called The Laughter Outside at Night. Now, that story was never professionally published, but Gene Wolfe's uh, friend and editor, Damon Knight, read this short story and convinced Gene Wolfe that he should expand it to a novel length. Wolf had a deal for this book with a publisher, but the publisher wanted a 60,000-word novel, and Wolf gave them a 100,000-word novel. The publisher insisted on the 60,000-word limit, and so the book was heavily edited, so with nearly really half of the book being cut. And Wolf himself was responsible for editing the first quarter or so of the book, and as the artist did a very careful line-by-line edit to excise material. But The process was taking a long time, so the publisher edited the last three quarters of the book and did so by cutting whole paragraphs rather than by shortening lines or truncating dialogue or really just doing any of the careful things that Wolf himself was doing. Now, today we're covering material that Wolf edited, and while it's definitely not his best work, I've really enjoyed it, Uh, but I expect that my opinion will decline as we get into the book. Yeah, we'll see. I really enjoyed the first two chapters of this book as well. Um, But we should also mention that a lot of this editing delayed the publication of the book until 1970, as we said, even though it was written around 1966. And that means that most of what we covered so far of Gene Wolfe's short stories were written after this novel was written, or at least concurrently with it. So I think that's going to, I think we're going to be able to see some of Wolf's development as a writer and craftsman as we go through this story, especially having read some of his short stories that he wrote after he started writing this novel. Yeah, and I think there's going to be some really fruitful topics for discussion there as we're looking at him developing as both a writer in his craft, but I think also as a, as a thinker, as a as a uh, someone who is thinking about the issues of uh, science fiction. But before we get to that discussion, I think we need to ground ourselves in the story. So, Brandon, why don't you take us through the plot of the first two chapters of Operation Ares? Absolutely. Chapter one is titled, Suppose They Come at Night. It opens with a tall man who is working to open a gate. The gate is set into a fence, which Wolf describes as a fortification erected by the very poor. The fence is designed with barbs and spikes meant to keep out unwanted intruders. The man opens the gate and he scans the roof line of the old farmhouse that is his destination. He knocks on the farmhouse door and he announces his presence. We learn his name is John, and he asks if everything is all right to Anna, who is the one who opens the door. She indicates that everything is still fine. His bed is still in the usual place. And it's clear by the way that she looks at John that she has a bit of a crush on him. And we learn that he has similar feelings towards her. This is a really interesting opening to this novel. Uh, The first thing I want to say about it is that I think the opening paragraph is pretty bad. I don't think it's well written. Wolf leans too far into his engineering sensibilities to describe what really amounts to be a barbed wire fence. And all of this engineering talk obscures what he really wants readers to take away from the fact of this fence, which is that the people who live inside the fenced area are poor. But it's, it's just too much engineering talk. Yeah, and it's also a little bit too obscure. I think he just doesn't get to the punch quick enough in the opening of the story. But I think he picks up really quickly, you know, from that. 
Yeah, the rest of this page, the rest of this first page after this opening paragraph is genius. Wolf builds mystery and suspense about the world by hinting at dangers without describing them. And I think that's really fantastic, uh, really fantastic work. That's right. Some of those mysteries uh, we'll get to very shortly. But the exchanged glances of John and Anna are interrupted by Japheth, which is the Hebrew word for handsome, which is a little bit ironic. Japheth remarks that John is late. The dark is coming, and something could have happened to him. They're worried about him. And John reassures Japheth, and, and he reminds him that Mars won't be up for two hours, and the curfew won't even start for another hour. Japheth tells John that without him, they're all finished, and the whole thing could be down the hole. The family couldn't handle it alone. Quote, being big and carrying a stick ain't enough. John reflexively corrects this use of the word ain't, and we learn from that that he's a school teacher. He refers to himself as Ichabod Crane. <laughs> and we also learn uh, that Japheth is a hunchback. Anna, Japheth, and John are standing in the old parlor of the farmhouse. And we're told that there's a photograph in the room that is set as the focus of the room. It's of a man wearing a bubble helmet and a bulging, ungainly suit, which trailed wires. And there's an indication here that Japheth's condition of being a hunchback is connected to a illness called being awakey. Like it's a, it's a characteristic of his being. And this is somehow connected to a space infected germplasm. And so like, basically we learn here that Japheth is a mutant and that John is concerned that Anna may be one as well. I actually had a question here about the line that Wolf uses to describe Japheth here and his his medical condition of being awakey and also his hunchback. The line is this, the germplasm space had touched, lived on in Japheth. I just didn't really understand what that meant. The writing of that was not clear to me at all. But you, you what, how did you interpret that, Brandon? I think there's a line that we get when we get the description of what a wakey is, which I'll just say it's a person who endures life without sleep. That indicates that Japheth has been either experimented on in some sort of laboratory, but to me that doesn't quite fit with the rest of the story, or that the photo of the astronaut is some member of the family and there's some space infection or something like that. It's really unclear, and I hope we get more of that later in the book. Yeah, me too. Because it, 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 it is unclear, but I do think it is connected with the photo of the astronaut. It certainly is in the narrative. Frankly, I just thought the grammar of that sentence didn't do a good job of conveying information, but that might be intentional, uh, as you know, this will not be the first time that Wolf wants to obfuscate some important background <laughs> material. Right, right, uh, right. And speaking of not the first time, I actually want to read what Wolf writes about the photo of the astronaut in the hallway of their house here. He writes, In the parlor of the old house, set at the focus of the room like an altar, hung the smiling photograph of a man in a bubble helmet and a bulging, ungainly suit which trailed wires. Right, and of course, we know, and it says later in the narrative, that, or later in that paragraph even, that this is an astronaut. We, we know this. Uh, Wolf is going to use this trick again uh, in Book of the New Sun, and it's really great to see that here, just really on the opening page of Operation Ares. There's a lot here that reminds me of the solar cycle that Wolf kind of returns to when he perfects it, which is such a joy to see. I mean, it's one of the joys of reading this book for me is seeing how Wolf really perfected a lot of these things. For me, this is really a precursor to Book of the Long Sun more than Book of the New Sun. Well, there's some some real ways we see that right here uh, we can talk about before we move on with the recap, which is to look at the names of these characters. You've pointed out that you know, Japheth is a Hebrew word. So is Anna. Anna is the Hebrew word for grace. But Japheth is also actually one of the children of Noah. Uh, and we're going to see another reference to the Noah story here, even in just these opening chapters we're talking about today. But it is also quite possible that there is something going on in this narrative about calamity and needing to rebuild after it. And so naming this character after one of the sons of Noah might be important. But even more significant, at least, or, or more relevant to thinking about the Book of the Long Son is that our main character's name is John Castle. So the initials JC, like Jesus Christ. Uh, so there might be something going on with that as well. <laughs> I didn't even catch that because I was uh, caught up with the 
connection to the chess game that we'll see later on in John Castle and the uh, his name being Castle and the reference to chess pieces that kind of comes up in that in that conversation that we'll get to in just a moment. But as I, as I said, a wakey is a person who endures life without sleep, and we learn a little bit about this condition. A person who is a wakey can't work out their tensions and frustrations by dreaming, which is an interesting theory of dreaming that Wolf presents us with. So after a few weeks of not sleeping or a few months, a wakey collapses and goes into a coma-like state. And it's actually this constant vigil that Wolf describes uh, of not being able to sleep that wreaks havoc on the wakey's body. And and this results in them having a hunched back. And this is um, the line I was alluding to before about the potential for Japheth having been experimented on. Wolf describes Japheth's eyes as the alert, sad eyes of a laboratory monkey. And to me... That's just a really interesting line, and I think it's meant to communicate quite a lot. The group moves into the kitchen, and there they, and there we meet a boy named Nani who is eating stew. He tells Mister Castle, as as I said, his name is John Castle, that everything is ready for tonight, and that he is double checked before he was made to eat the stew. Um, he also assures John that the antenna display that he has set up isn't visible from the road. But John, who had earlier scanned the roof line, notes that there's something visible from the road, and it's the tip end of the dipole antenna. And they need to be careful because a patrol cruiser goes past this house nearly every night. Now, as they're having this conversation, they hear a sound in the distance. Uh, Wolf describes this sound as a strangled scream broken into many parts, like the laughter of a madman or a demon, bereft of all hope, all joy, and at last, all meaning. And this is the title of the original short story. But Anna voices her concern about the noise, and she says to Japheth, suppose they come at night. They do sometimes, you know, and here we have this kind of core fear of these people huddled in this farmhouse at night. Yeah, and this is that that mystery and suspense that I mentioned earlier. I mean, this is at this point in the story, I'm absolutely hooked and I'm I'm riveted. I'm trying to turn these pages as quickly as I can. I wanted to know what was going on. What's the deal with Mars? Why are there mutants? What is making the noise outside that they're afraid of? Why do they have to hide a, a radio antenna from patrol cruisers? Uh, just in two pages, Wolf presents us with all of these questions and no answers. That's right. marvelous, marvelous Oh, it's crap. great stuff. And I, yeah, I also wonder, you know, Japheth's concern about John being, well, we'll all be sunk without you. And what's going on? What What is the connection there that they need John for? And I think we get some answers as the text goes on, at least to that. But I even think that is pretty unclear as we seek to answer these questions. So eventually Mars ascends in, in the night sky and the group go to an attic in the house where a charcoal-fired steam engine powers a generator that in turn powers a television. They turn on the television and watch intently as a transmission from Mars is broadcast. And I want to read this broadcast in its entirety. It's pretty short. It begins with an ellipsis and the word ship. If any of you are really listening out there, listen, please, any of the cities of Earth, if you will blink the lights of your city in three short flashes, any time Mars is in the sky, we will know we have communicated with you. Mars is now about 15 degrees above the horizon to the east, as seen by an observer on the east coast of North America. Mars looks like a star, but has a reddish cast and does not twinkle. If you have very good vision or optical aids, you will be able to discern a slight disk, which you cannot do with any star. And then it ends with an ellipsis. I love that. Here we get the first hint that there's something wrong that people don't remember the planets. This is ancient knowledge that has been lost. And this is just a really interesting way to bring that into the story. And we just casually learn here that there are people on Mars. And that they are communicating with with the people on Earth as well. I mean, we might have guessed this from the title of the book already and the emphasis on Mars in sort of the second paragraph of the story. But uh, I like how casually Wolf introduces it here because 
although this is still setting the premise for us, the reader, the characters he's writing about have already bought into the premise of this world because they live in it. And Wolf is, even here in his first novel, and one of his earliest bits of writing that we've looked at is writing about this world from the perspective of the people who live in it, not from the perspective of an audience. And it's fantastic. I really enjoy it. It's This is just his mode of writing. And it's why go to Wolf? Because I don't want a lot of exposition <laughs> necessarily uh, in every science fiction story. I don't want to read 150 pages about world building in every science fiction or fantasy novel I read. Why? One of the reasons why I love Wolf is that he's able to just convey information as if people in the world are living it. And so we were just talking about this transmission. And after it ends, the live transmission, it, it switches over to a taped talk about how to design a maser transmitter to allow those who are concerned about the people on Mars to communicate back with them. And Nani sketches these diagrams, you know, furiously as as they're listening, watching the tape. And then the broadcast ends and the group all goes to sleep. I was really excited to see the use of maser here. This is not something we encounter very often. Maser, you know, Brandon, of course, is a device that produces a type of electromagnetic wave. It's an acronym for microwave amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. This was a precursor to the laser, which is also an acronym in which the L stands for light and the rest of it's the same as in maser. This is knowledge you and I have because of our specialized army training right and uh, i was just really excited to to see it here i've never seen it in a book before no yeah that's the first time i've seen it too in fact i misread it when i was reading it it's just like i thought they just misprinted master because it's such an (laughs) uncommon such an uncommon word so the group is asleep but john is shaken awake by nani uh, a little after midnight there are creatures outside the door they're in the fence line Some of them are on the back porch. Anna, Japheth, and Nani huddle in a candlelit kitchen while a fire roars in the hearth. Japheth thinks there are at least a hundred of the creatures outside in the fence line. The only weapon they have, the only weapon the government will, will allow them to have, is an axe. And John reminds the group that the creatures won't be able to get inside because there are bars on the window. As John is trying to reassure the group, a scrabbling of claws and a wet, snuffling nose explores a crack in the door and brings with it a fetid reek. John kicks the door panel and the the creature goes away. Japheth suggests that they should make guns. No one gets any more sleep that night, and in the morning, John leaves. Yeah, this was a real terrifying scene here at night, and I really, at this point, desperately want to know what these creatures are there's also a lot when they're talking about making guns wolf narrates that one of the creatures outside laughs again almost as if it can hear the conversation and understands it and thinks that idea is hilarious it's very creepy it's great stuff he again uses a scene like this to great effect in book of the new sun and you just see he's developing these sorts of horrifying creatures to haunt the characters of his worlds. And it's fantastic. He's a great horror writer. Yeah, I mean, I had shivers when I was reading this, and I'm getting shivers again thinking about it now. And I know know what you're about to tell us is going to happen, and I'm getting shivers thinking about that. It's beautiful stuff. Well, John leaves in the morning, and he heads out to the Civic Center. And what we learn is that any man who is unable or unwilling to maintain his home in White City, which is the area that they live, it's a rural area, is actually compelled to live in the Civic Center. The Civic Center provides a free breakfast to its tenants, and John doesn't want to be late for it. And he doesn't want to be late because he doesn't want to impose on the trees by eating their food, and also presumably because he's hungry as well. As John is walking to the Civic Center, he engages in a fantasy uh, in his mind about war, research, and exploration. His father was a scientist who worked at Cape Kennedy and the Pentagon, but his father was exiled to this town of White City for suspicion of political activity, and John grew up listening to his father talk about the glory of knowledge won in the laboratory. 
And we also learned that the armed forces were the last organization to support the Mars stations. Even as he is lost in this fantasy and reminiscence, he's still alert and aware of his surroundings. He keeps an eye out for these chalky droppings or creatures lurking in the shadows. And, but he's particularly cognizant of one place called Cemetery Hill, where the relatives of the dead that are interned there have built protective fires that they keep burning to keep the creatures away. And John reflects upon one morning where he brought fresh fuel for the fire for his father's grave and shudders. I just want to point out two things about this scene, Brandon. First of all, just in thinking about where we are in the world, we know that we're in the United States. We know we're on the eastern part of the United States because of what is told to us in the Mars transmission. We're told here that White City is a rural town. But beyond that, we don't really know where this is just yet. But I want to point out that we learn here in this scene that, that it's it's late autumn, it's approaching winter, but there is no snow. And that might indicate something about where we are and sort of uh, in terms of latitude, but it might also have something to do with some environmental things that we're going to hear more about later, which these creatures that we've encountered already uh, are also wrapped up in. But before we move on, I also just want to spend a moment focusing on this description of Cemetery Hill, and I just want to read it for listeners. On his right, Cemetery Hill marked the beginning of the town. Old marble monuments crowned the hill, leaving the lower slopes to the newer burials. Mere mounds blackened in the center, where relatives had built protective fires. The wrought iron fence looked impenetrable, but John recalled the morning when he had come with fresh fuel for his father's grave, and shuddered. What I want to point out here is that Wolf is going to take that exact description and expand it and use it in the Book of the New Sun. This one really jumped out to me. We've been pointing these out already, but this one really jumped out to me because this is the exact passage I read in our introductory episode when I was explaining what it is that I love the most about Wolf's work, what I go to Wolf's work for. And it was so great to see that that's here in his first novel and that he's going to adapt this paragraph and expand it and put it in a, in a different setting. Yeah, it's great. You can tell he's really working out his ideas about what kind of world he finds compelling to write about that his characters are living in. And he returns to this world time and again. It's really great to see an early version of it in this novel. Well, a little while after he passes Cemetery Hill, John arrives at the Civic Center and he's just in time for breakfast. And he runs into this character who's called the Captain. We're told that the captain is impressive in his pale blue uniform. We get a little note about his rank insignia, which is doves. But the captain taps his glass when John comes in, and the hall falls silent. And the captain talks to John in a silent room, basically. The captain makes a remark about John's erudition and calls out, then that it is hog slaughtering time. And here Wolf tells us that a hog is a derisive nickname for people who are believed to favor government expenditures on scientific or educational adventures. And as we'll learn later on, this term hog is really a scapegoating term to describe anybody who's caused the failure and collapse of the United States. And so the captain is playing an odd game here, calling John out in front of everybody else. As breakfast is served, we see that the captain gets a double portion of the best food, and John really gets the worst gruel on the menu. Yeah, I mean, it's real disgusting. Some great, great more horror writing about the detritus of eggs. Uh, it was the yeah. scariest thing in the book for me. <laughs> yeah, yellowy, watery eggs is like the worst, I think. I, there's nothing worse than that. But before we, before we move on, I want to focus on the captain's uniform you said it's it's pale blue and has clusters of doves denoting his rank. The organization that he's a part of is called the Peace Guard. We haven't learned that yet. And this all seems an awful lot like UN peacekeepers to me, right? They wear light blue headgear. Uh, the UN flag uses an olive branch on their flag. This is a symbol of peace in Christianity, just like a dove. And they both, both the dove and the olive branch, right, derive from Noah's flood story. So this is also our second reference to Noah just in this first chapter. Uh, the line actually from Genesis eight eleven is this, 
And the dove came back to him in the evening, and there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. And I think that this cannot be accidental. There's a lot going on here that Wolf Wolf is wanting to call our attention to the Noah story here early on with these names and these these images. Yeah, and we should also know, I mean, and perhaps we'll bring this up in the discussion, there was a lot of paranoia and still is a lot of paranoia about the UN's peacekeeping troops and their attentions and the real reaches of their power. And here Wolf is, I think you're absolutely right to point out that Wolf is playing with that paranoia. After breakfast, John begins his day job, and he's doing his work as a teacher. And we learn a little bit about what it means to be a teacher in this government. So because the government can't afford teachers, actually, they allow them to pay a small rent for the use of the classroom after the compulsory education portion of the day is over. And they can charge adult students for classes. John teaches physics to adult students, and he charges them, of which we learn Anna Trees is one, silver, because the value of government scrip is in flux. It often reaches zero. And here we also learn that 12 students enrolled in the class, but only eight remain. Yeah, we learn an awful lot about the world on this page here. And the most important thing is in learning about the monetary system and the education system, we learn that the government of the United States is is essentially bankrupt, or at least does not have enough revenue in order to actually fund education or to back strong currency. So that's a real that's a real problem. But there is also something here just about about the philosophy of education that is definitely wrong or definitely definitely something that has changed in this world that Wolf is building from our own world, and that is that we see the privatization and the commercialization of education where up until this point, at least as we're recording in 2017, the public funding of education has been the hallmark of modern democracy. This is the thing that our modern democracies rest on, and that is gone in this. Yeah, it's a terrible picture. I mean, the idea not only that the way teachers actually get paid is one, they're forced to be recognized by the government as teachers, which we have today. We need teachers, many teachers need certifications that are rooted in government authorization to teach, that hasn't gone away. But what's gone away is the government paying them and then essentially taxing them for trying to make money teaching adult education classes. And and we learn there's a real lack of education. He's teaching physics 101 to adults. And I think it's clear that the children who are students really are only in class about a half day because nobody's out after dark. There's a curfew and then they make their money after maybe the morning classes are over and adults come in. Well, on this day, instead of giving a lecture, John notifies his class that an educational broadcast is going to be beginning shortly and it's going to be about practical mechanics. So the broadcast begins and the lecturer is seated behind a desk in the temporary capital in Arlington. The lecturer discusses how to build practical traps for the wildlife that have escaped from like converted strip mines whom nature preserves. <laughs> um, the wildlife includes species native to North America, including we learn the ocelot, the baboon, the grizzly bear, the black bear, the hyena, and the puma. But there are also issues with the imported fauna, ostensibly, or the cover story is from Africa. And the text doesn't make it clear that that it's a cover story, but I'm just going to infer that it could be a cover story. Well, the fact that the, the broadcast is insisting that baboons and hyenas are indigenous to North America when they are not I mean, that right. is that is right. a cover story. Yes. Yeah. And it's, it's not clear what it's to cover for. I mean, the story that we're given here is that the ecology of Africa was collapsing at some point in the last 40 years, 20 to 40 years ago. And so many animals were brought to the United States so that their species would not die. This is yet our third reference to the Noah story, right? Uh, but that at some point when the economy or in the government were collapsing or going bankrupt or something, it was no longer possible to keep those things in operation. And this broadcast is trying to assure listeners that all of those animals were either killed or given to zoos. And the fact that there are baboons and hyenas actually running around 
near your town doesn't mean that they came from Africa, because in fact, those animals are indigenous to North America, no matter what your biology teacher might be telling you. Right. Well, they also point out in this broadcast that um, part of the problem, in fact, is the citizens who aren't able to even recognize what animals are part of their environment. There's kind of like a weird blame being placed on the citizens when education is being withheld. One thing Wolf is really good at is understanding how propaganda works. It really makes me wonder if he was a reader of the Catholic sociologist Jacques Ellul, who covers a lot of this stuff extensively, because it is really on point. I mean, it is like a studied understanding of the uses of propaganda in a mass communication society. Yeah, and it's a real theme here of these first two chapters. We're going to see it again in the second chapter as we get there, where it's really even just a, it's even becomes a plot point. Exactly. One thing we do learn is that the trap that the lecture is trying to teach people how to build build is basically just a bear trap, and that works well on all the animals except for the baboon. <laughs> <laughs> um, but before the lecture goes on for too long, there's a power failure in the civic center. Like John Castle instructs his students to go get some candles uh, so that he can continue from his regular lecture. I th- it's clear that this kind of brownout happens all the time. But the students begin asking why there are problems with the generating station in the first place. One student asks that question. Another student asks if there is some form of lost knowledge or something has been forgotten pertaining to the function of the generators. Castle recognizes this as a dangerous line of questioning, and he doesn't want to appear more politically suspicious than he already is. So he responds to the students in such a way that could not be misconstrued as politically incorrect. And I want to read his response because it's a great bit of world building, I think. Wolf writes this. At length, he said carefully, we lack none of the technical information which was available when the station was built. But the losses of trained personnel suffered during the disastrous attempts to set up scientific stations on the inner planets have still not been completely made up. They are reflected in parts shortages. (laughs) And we also learn that he stops himself short from alluding to the fact that there is a fear-inspired confinement of the manual technical skills to the politically reliable And this has resulted in riots in the Atlantic Belt cities that keep the government in a constant state of crisis. And it's just a great kind of answer that doesn't really answer anything, but it's a safe answer. And John feels he must give this to the adults in the class. Yeah, so we learn here that the government's line anyway is that the space program brought about the destruction of the United States or the the collapse of the U.S. government and the U.S. economy, and that we're now living in a something of a dystopia uh, because of because of spending too much money on exploring outer space, going to the moon, setting up uh, Mars colony. Yeah. And there are no resources we could have gotten from that. So nothing can be made. That parts shortage line comes a little bit from the reference in the broadcast transmission about how, well, we would give you bear traps, but we don't have, we haven't been able to make up the losses yet. So he's kind of using the party line that he just got from this broadcast. It's a great, it's just a great use of language and a great kind of tightly constructed scene, I think. Before we go on, I just want to highlight something that you did say, which is that there's this description of something called a rioting street Senate in the over-urbanized Atlantic Belt cities that keep the government on the verge of crisis. This is kind of a throwaway line here, but it's some really interesting world building. I'm going to want to talk about it in the discussion. So I just wanted to wanted to highlight it here. Fantastic. Eventually, the class ends and John resists the temptation to walk in a home or at least to Cemetery Hill to ensure her safety. He worries about the danger she may face, especially as night is coming earlier and earlier every day. In the lobby of the Civic Center, John Castle is beckoned over by the captain, who invites John to play a game of chess, as the captain knows John has nothing to do between now and dinner. And this is really indicative of the way the captain speaks in these implied imperative. He never issues direct commands, but everything he says acts as an imperative in that everybody responds with an action to even his 
passive requests. And Wolf is very consistent with this in the way the captain speaks. And I really appreciate that. It's great characterization for writing, but this also belies that Wolf spent some time in the army. We, we know how this works too, that when your CO or even just the person directly above you in the chain of command speaks, it's a command whether it's in the imperative mood or not. And it's tough to capture in writing. I mean, I'm really impressed by Wolf's skill in capturing this in this story. We learn that these two men, the captain and John Castle, have a bit of a standing wager with this chess game. John recalls that if the captain wins, he is going to have to sign a statement for the captain, which he's not going to repudiate under any circumstances. We get the sense that this statement is a confession about speaking in a manner that is ill-suited for the political climate. John indicates to the captain, just out of disgust of being presented with this option, to play under these conditions, that he thinks the Peace Guard are basically thugs who would kill him for speaking ill-advisedly. And the captain reminds John that the Peace Guard are forbidden to take life. The captain, though, seems unfazed by John's verbal challenges, and instead he decides to raise the stakes of the chess game. The captain says that if he loses, he'll tell John something he might be interested in knowing as it can concerns one of John's students. Well, this gets John's attention, so he agrees to the game. The men play for two hours, long enough that the sun goes down and dinner is brought out to them as they're playing. They're playing the game, draws a crowd, and eventually John traps the captain with a bishop. John tells the captain that he doesn't think the captain understands the clergy and that it's his chief weakness. And this is an amazing line that is fraught with significance and symbolism, surely. Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. And the captain's retort is fantastic. And this is another callback to the original title of this short story. The captain says that John's weakness is that he doesn't comprehend the night. And this is spelled with a K, but the crowd laughs. And we know that it's not just the night with a K that he's talking about the chess game. He's talking about the knight in general. And this is a kind of indicator that the captain knows exactly what John is up to in the evenings when he is not in the civic center. Yeah. And making these claims about which pieces the other doesn't understand really also points out their own, the identities of these players where John Castle is like the bishop is someone who is an educator, someone who is a thinker, someone who's a member of a community, whereas the captain, as uh, the knight in this case, is a warrior, right, is is a fighter, someone who maybe stands opposed to those things, and in this world is, seems to be something, seems to be a member of something of a military junta. Yeah, exactly. Well, after the game ends, the captain asks John for the time, and John tells the captain that it's almost eight. The captain does another indirect order and shoes the onlookers to bed. After they leave, the captain compliments John on the game, and he tells him that he's the only man in the Civic Center that will give him an honest game. But the captain is a man of his word, and and he lost, and so he's going to honor his side of the bargain. He tells John that one of his students is involved in a breach of the peace and that John had better keep clear of that person. John says that if he's to keep clear of that student, he has to know who it is. And the captain says it's Anna Trees in that the captain knows that the trees have unauthorized communications equipment on their farm. They will be raided the following morning. And It's late enough now, the captain goes on, to let John know, because no one at this hour would be able to warn the trees in advance of this kind of raid. It's dark and dangerous outside, and the captain's patrol cruisers are the only things that dare move in in the night. Well, John is incensed by this, and he insults the Peace Guard to the captain's face. And then he reflects upon the fact that if they knew about the unauthorized equipment in the TV set, they could have just raided the farm the night before when he was there. But also he's thinking frantically about a way to warn the trees before the raid. So he's just, his thoughts are racing. 
The captain threatens John because of his continual insults towards the Peace Guard, but John just keeps going. He says that the Peace Guard are an organization that is strong enough to oppress, but too weak to protect, and that things would be different if there were still a military, if it hadn't been gutted after the Cold War. Again, the captain is just unfazed by this, because I think John is like pretty dense in understanding the captain's intentions with John. So the captain sighs, and he just tells John that he enjoys talking with him, and he has to go, and that John might have some errands to run. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He also lets him know that the radio was out, uh, along with the rest of the power, and that if someone were to get to the trees before the patrols in the morning, well, there's just no way the captain could notify the patrols. And John leaves running. (laughs) From the Civic Center. It's clear to us, the readers, and it's also clear to John that the captain wants him to run to the tree's house. But John thinks that it's because the captain is hoping that he will get caught by the predators, the animals that are on the loose, and be killed. That's not, it's not clear that that's the, what the captain's actual motive is, and I think that we will find out more about the captain's actual motives as the novel progresses. Yeah, the captain is playing a very elaborate game with all these pieces as they begin to come together. We haven't met operationaries yet. They're going to show up in the next chapter. But I think the, the pieces that the captain has in his chess piece box right now are John and the trees and his patrols. And he's, he's kind of running the whole show. And it's not clear to me at all, even after reading two chapters, what his intentions really are. Yeah, it's really great stuff. Before we move on in the plot here, Brandon, I want to just bring up one other thing that we learn uh, in their conversation after the chess match, which is that it's been 20 years since the U.S. Constitution was suspended due to rioting and was replaced by a president pro tem. And the president pro tem was chosen from among the bureaucrats who administered welfare programs. And uh, we also learned earlier in the broadcast that the government, this temporary government that is seemingly permanent, uh, is based not in Washington, D.C., but across the river in Arlington. The word Arlington is used, but that has to just mean the Pentagon, right? Right. I think so. Yeah. Well, let's return to John's quest this evening. He is running down the road past Cemetery Hill, and there's... A few pages here of action, um, and I'm going to summarize it pretty quickly, but we learn that as he's running, he's being pursued by a pack of these creatures. They're described as a pack, and we learn that they move in this odd, loping canter, which was just a description I loved. John realizes that without a diversion, he won't be able to escape them, and so he finds a an abandoned barn loft or just one that's not in use at night because the family's in the house. And he climbs up through the top window and he thinks that if he can release a horse, that the creatures will chase the horse instead of him. So he does all that. He releases the horse and he keeps running and his plan kind of doesn't pay off all that much. There's some great action writing, some great horror writing here, but eventually he does escape only to be picked up by the peace guard. Yeah, this scene with the Predators here was intense, and I was really scared reading it. And Wolf does some really awesome work here with language. You you said already that, that the Predators are described as being in a pack and this loping walk, but we also get some interesting things about their vocalizations. Uh, Wolf describes them as giving a concerted yell and then describes that as a half shout, half laugh. Uh, and later on in this in this scene... The narrator calls them, or really John Castle, whose mind we're in at this point, calls these things animals, but then also calls them yelling demons. And I just really want to know what the heck these things are. It's so good. Yeah, it's great. And I don't know if we're ever going to find out in this story. And I kind of hope we don't. But I hope we get some strong hints about the conditions that create created them, which I think I think we do. But I want more about how these creatures came to be. Yeah, I want more clues, but no answers. I mean, it's really what I love about this. And it's it's so fun. Yeah, and it's great. I mean, this is Wolf's trick, right, is to leave us wanting answers from his writing, but just giving us enough clues to figure it out like that. We can be satisfied when we come to an interpretation that suits us. And it's just something that's great about Wolf as a writer. 
Well, we've got one last scene in chapter one. You want to finish that off for us? Absolutely. So John is picked up by the police, by the peace guard, and they don't know who he is. So he tries to talk his way out of the arrest uh, for being out after curfew. He tells the men in the peace guard that he woke up worried about the fire he had lit on Cemetery Hill for his mother. And they're empathetic. They're understanding about why he's out, but they also have a job to do. And don't worry about it, John, they say. You'll just spend the night in in the cell, and you'll talk to the captain in the morning. It's not a big deal. He'll chew you out, but it's fine. This kind of thing happens a lot. But John is still very worried about the trees. So he tells the peace guard that Japhet, up at the trees farm, has treated him badly. He's done him a bad turn. And because the sergeant is being so kind to him and taking him in and making sure he's protected, he wants to do something good for the sergeant. So John tells the sergeant that Japhet has not paid his non-voting levy in two years and that they should go check it out. And he tells the sergeant that he needs to make sure that John Castle sent them, which, you know, in the story, in the cover story that he gives is like, you know, they understand. These guys are really empathetic for the job they're doing. Um, and it's it's pretty pretty great writing, I think. Oh, yeah. This is a real great description of the enforcers of what seems to be a police state as just being regular guys who have a job and that John Castle is able to relate with them on that level of we're all trying to make it in this world. Thanks for saving me from the predators. Let me help you out by giving you some information that you'll definitely want to act on in order to better yourself, to, to profit this characterization of the Peace Guard reminds me a lot of the soldiers we encounter in the Book of the Long Sun that Silk encounters um, under the lake. And it's just great to see again. And I mean, who knows how much we'll keep on pointing out these great connections between this work and the solar cycle. But it's just so great to see that even in this kind of militarized place that Wolf creates no easy enemies in his fiction. The men take John back to the prison, and he spends the night there. And in the morning, he wakes up, he pays the fine to the captain, and he learns that the trees had had enough time to prepare for the raid. And that is the end of chapter one. Chapter two of Operation Ares is called A Man of This Planet. And it opens with John teaching his math class and the group of students he's teaching are absolutely disinterested in the content of his lecture. Most of them, we learn, are openly working on civics homework because the sciences and math are dirt courses. And we learn a little bit later on in this chapter that that just means that they're concerned with matter and that that is something to be looked down upon because that is what the sciences are concerned with. John is interrupted by a student runner who lets him know that Arlington will be on the TV in two minutes so he better get the TV warmed up. When the TV is on, it's tuned in to the broadcast and Hail to the Chief plays in the background. President Pro Tem Fitzpatrick Boyd is introduced and he appears on the screen in a, quote, repulsively cozy office. The president gives an address about the problems in the U.S. and he discusses what happened 20 years ago to create these types of problems. A group of people have drained away the country's wealth. They've taken money that could have been used to help the children and the poor to build, quote, a new frontier in the sky. This group continued to miss deadlines to pay back what they borrowed from the U.S. from the resources they were supposed to find. And at a certain point, the government just told them that they would be cut off and America would be fine without them. This in turn created a situation where those on the ground, the president tells us, had to get a little rough with the new frontier. But in hindsight, this was the right thing to do. Yeah, there's some nice coded language there. And I just want to point out the ethnicity of the president's name. This is an Irish name. Uh, we've seen Wolf invoke this before. Uh, we saw in IBEM, for example, Wolf having a little fun with the idea of uh, Irish Catholic presidents uh, and talking about the Kennedys who had been sainted. So I think that Wolf is not uh, is not using this name lightly. I'm not quite sure what it's all going to amount to just yet, but I think this might become important as we progress in this story. That's a great point. I had not thought to make that connection between the kind of overt 
Irishness of the president's identity and the Kennedys. <laughs> but it's probably a connection I should have made. So this other group, the New Frontier, has been is angry, the president tells us, that they've been cut off from the U.S. And they don't like living in that sandy place with no air. And that's why they just interrupt broadcasts from the government. They're just like a nuisance. But, I mean, what's interesting to me is that, of course, the leader of the nation would not simply broadcast a message to talk about a nuisance. So, like, that's part of what's great about this is this is how propaganda operates. Like, what are the conditions that create this? is the question you have to be asking when you hear a message from the government like this. So the broadcast interruptions are disruptive, but now it seems like the Martians have escalated their plans. They've built relay stations that are intended to make things uncomfortable for the citizens of Earth. And in retaliation, the U.S. plans to broadcast a new series of educational videos designed to re-educate the citizens about the principles for which the government has fought for the past 20 years and remind them a little bit of the history as well. And the first broadcast is set to air that night at 9 p.m. The transmission ends, and the students wonder how any of them are supposed to be able to watch the broadcast if they're not living already at the Civic Center. Castle answers that he imagines the government will want to show the broadcast immediately rather than delaying the transmission because they don't want it to be jammed, and this surprise is better than planning. But also, it will likely be rebroadcast or someone will tape it so that they'll be able to watch it. And John also says he hopes that this will be the case because he's going off site for dinner tonight and the place where he's going, they don't have a set. And But we know he's going to the trees and that they do have a set. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's some real on the nose uh, obfuscation there. Uh, but, you know, he's got to cover himself. I mean, he, he did just spend the night in the clinker. Right. That's exactly right. His workday ends. And so John does head out to the trees where he can watch the transmission with them. There is a scripted question and answer section in the broadcast, and the able man, this quote, able man, responds to a question about the potential for a war with Mars. This question isn't asked explicitly, but the answer indicates that that was the question asked. The man says that it would not be possible for Mars to launch a war with the United States, primarily because of the supply lines involved for the Martians. It would just be, they'd be far too long and involved. They wouldn't be able to really get off the ground. But he further goes on to say that the Martian satellites, these relay stations are unmanned and that they really are just designed for disrupting broadcasts. And this all sounds like protesting too much. And I don't know that this is the direction the novel's going to take. But if I were a betting person, I would probably bet on, yes, that we are going to see some of these things, see that some of these things that this able man is saying are not true, uh, that his assumptions are false, and that we are going to see some interaction here with Mars and uh, the United States. Yeah, I am not sure if we're ever going to see the people of Mars show up in this story based on these two chapters. But it is becoming increasingly clear that perhaps they have allies on Earth. And that's kind of the story we'll get. But I'm excited to see what happens here, because I think so far, everything has been intriguing and really well set up. But I think here after this broadcast, we have our first instance of kind of rough editing. It cuts immediately to an education team arriving the next day. And this is a team sent from the government. The education team has been touring around with a truck and some oxen, and they're going to be doing a demonstration where they hoist the oxen up with an elevator they build in order to prove their superiority to the citizens of White City. The education team works on the display for about three days, and on the third evening, the captain approaches John and he asks him what he's thinking. John tells the captain that he's thinking about the first interruption of a government broadcast from Ares, and this is the first time we get the name of this organization, and, and we don't know what they are yet, but we learn a little bit about them. He feels out of step with the culture because he missed it, so this was some kind of cultural event that's okay to speak openly about 
but the captain says that he's not worried about Ares, even if it if it even exists. Ares is probably nothing more than a handful of fanatics who have been able to achieve the not necessarily difficult task of disrupting government broadcasts. <laughs> um, the captain goes on to say that Ares is likely just four fanatical people under the leadership of a brilliant electronics technician. A scientist who would sympathize with the scientists on Mars and would betray the people of this country as the scientists always have. Yeah, which is to say John Castle, Japheth, Anna, and Nani. (laughs) Right, right. He's saying, I I know who you are. But um, yeah, we'll see if that's true. That's like a prediction. I think I I have at least about this story. We learn that the letters A-R-E-S that make up the word Aries are being chalked up everywhere around the nation as the captain and John are discussing this brought interruption um, on their way to the lounge of the civic center. Uh, When they arrive to the lounge, it's empty and the captain and John continue a conversation about the state of the nation. There are dissatisfied people and it doesn't help anyone to pretend that there are not. The captain asks John what he thinks about the presentation that will take place the next day. Does John think that it's infantile, for instance, given the education that he has? The captain also mentions to John that the presentation has been done before and that the citizens were not as odd as the presenters had hoped. So they're upping the stakes for this one. They're going to do something a little more spectacular. Yeah, I mean, to, to be a good propagandist, you have to be a good showman. You have to put on a circus here. And that's exactly what they're doing. John points out that the truck the education team is using is an old GMC truck from the 1980s, and it's just been repainted. <laughs> John shouldn't have said this because it indicates that the scientists from that time had built something that endures while they were still on Earth. there's You can't say that what they made was good, even though the government still uses these trucks that were built by scientists. Right. And you can't say that we now no longer possess the capability to make or design machines like this. Right. And so it's the indication here, it's better just to not comment on it at all. But while they're talking about this, they also are talking, still kind of talking about Aries. And we learn that Aries' goal is to play up the ideal of a return to a scientifically directed technology um, or like a scientifically directed technological civilization. But John says that's only a cover for what the real issue is. And that's that people today live worse than they did when the scientists were on earth. And he just continues to go on a tear here. He mentions that they live in a state where mankind is loved with utter idealism and human nature is forgotten. And there's like two quick things I want to say before before we move on. I'm not sure if you have comments about this, Glenn. But one is that this people that are chalking up the letter Aries or the word Aries around the country is a hundred percent Book of the Long Sun. <laughs> so yep, yep. that is that is gonna come back in Wolf's oeuvre. And the other thing is that this line about mankind being loved with utter idealism and human nature is forgotten, or like the individual is not loved as a result, is straight out of Brothers Karamazov. And um, Ivan's conversation with his brother Alyosha at dinner covers a lot of the things that John covers in the tirade. And it was just really interesting for me to kind of see that there's a real connection there. Well, that's a great catch, because I think we're, we're meant to be thinking a little bit about Russia while we're reading this book. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, there's not a more humane book written than Karamazov. <laughs> and that's, there's something about that I, that we're supposed to take away from this story as well. Before we uh, move on in the recap, I just want to point out two things in this conversation that really jumped out to me. And there are things that the captain says. The first is that scientists have always betrayed this country. This is seems to be something of a party line, but also seems to be something that the captain believes sort of on a profound level. And the second thing that he says is that laws make it too difficult to apprehend criminals who are a severe menace to the nation. And John pushes back against that and says sarcastically, kind of snidely, I suppose we would all be safer if you could put people to the torture. But it is, I think, important to note that these are not in the captain's powers. I'm really excited to find out in this story what the captain is really up to. I'm just not sure what the captain believes. 
we're meant to be confused and also intrigued about this at this point. Wolf does a great job of keeping us kind of in those states with this character. Yeah, and well, we're, we're about to get some more right now. That's right. The tirade is interrupted by the clicking of boot heels on the floor, which to me was a fantastic, chilling image about this kind of, as we learn more about this police state. The captain notifies Castle that Anna and Japheth have come to live in the White City. And John says it's due to the animals raiding the farm on a nightly basis. But more importantly, um, Japheth was overheard discussing the potential for Ares to sabotage the demonstration. And furthermore, it's, ex- it's suspected that a bomb may be used. And the captain asks John if he has any experience with explosives. This puts John on alert, and he's reluctant to answer the captain. So the captain switches his tactics. He says that it's good that John knows about these old machines and engines and explosives and science, because that means that he's qualified to examine them. And all he wants to do is make sure that the equipment being used in the demonstration hasn't been tampered with. John, though, is again very flippant with the captain, because he feels that the request to examine the items is not a request at all, but a command. And the captain says that John is substantially right in that, but that due to a public ordinance that has just passed a few hours ago, the captain is given the authority to make this command to John, and he'll do so if he has to. The public ordinance provides that uh, men of the captain's rank or higher are able to demand the technical assistance from qualified experts under emergency conditions. But the captain is very savvy, and he really doesn't think that he's going to persuade John with this um, jackbooted thug inquiry and commands. But he does expect that John will cooperate because what the person who interrupted their conversation brought with him is sworn affidavits from people in the White City stating that they had heard Japheth say that he has put a bomb in the truck. There's something interesting about this ordinance that I want to bring up, which is that uh, John Castle asks who gets to decide whether or not he has the expertise that would permit the captain to to order him to try to find and potentially defuse a bomb. And the captain says, well, the judge would do that. And so it's important to note that there are judges still in this society. That's something I think I'm going to want to talk about in the discussion. Yeah, and I think judges play a very important role in the captain's understanding of how the society still functions and gives him coverage for the kind of work he has to do. John is very concerned about this affidavit, and the captain kind of goes out on another limb and just says, I want to make, I'll make a pact with you, John. If there's a bomb found, the captain says, he would ensure that Japheth's trial would be handled by a humane judge who really understood the condition of being a wakey, and that this judge would make sure that Japheth would be institutionalized rather than imprisoned. And Castle agrees that it's fair, that that's a fair deal, but furthermore, that he thinks it would be best for Japheth. I think there's a little bit of a different motivation here for Castle, though it's not stated, but I think Castle thinks that if Japheth were out of the way be able to have a relationship with Anna. The captain gives his word that no one will be arrested if a bomb is not found, even if the demonstration fails for any other reason. So Castle agrees to the terms, and the two men head out and inspect the equipment that will be used for the demonstration. After a thorough examination of the equipment, including turning the car engine on and off several times, John finds that there has been no tampering or bomb. The next day, the people of the White City gather for the demonstration. The children have all created anti-science banners as a school project, and they depict scientists as pigs with long noses and sinister faces. And the winner of this like school banner competition gets like he, they get to be put on display, and it's um, a really chilling moment of like scapegoatism and really Holocaust imagery, to be honest, or just that, that kind of propaganda that existed, anti-Semitic propaganda. Yeah, it calls back to the use of the term hogs earlier uh, in chapter one, but they, this drawing of a class of people you don't like as animals and as dirty animals in particular, yeah, is, this is straight out of the Nazi playbook. 
John, Anna, and Japheth find one another in the crowd, and um, as they're kind of all in the square waiting for the demonstration to begin, they are handed a pamphlet which denotes the fact that under the president's direction and strong leadership, the standard of living has never been higher and never before has such promise existed in the land. And these are contradictory claims, which is fantastic. I mean, if your standard of living is the highest it's ever been, you don't need promise um, because you're already living well. And it's just a great, great bit of propaganda. It speaks to both the ideal that people wish they lived in and the desires that to have their needs met at the same time. It's wonderful writing. And also notes that the scientists want to take all of that away from us and nobody should be listening to scientists. So the education team prepares the demonstration and as they turn the engine over in the truck, there is a crashing explosion. And this is the end of chapter two. This was a riveting end. And we're left with the mystery, With we're left with the question of, how did a bomb get in there in these intervening moments? And of course, also, who placed it? Right? These are the questions we're going to go into chapter three with. That's right. And part of the information we're given is that both John and the captain are kind of uncomfortable even being out as late as they are examining the truck, and that whoever did get in there in the intervening hours would have to be very courageous because there are still the, the kind of scavenging animals on the loose. There's still a lot of fear to be had for being out in the early morning hours before dawn. Well, with our mystery, I think, well-established, our nice cliffhanger ending to chapter two, I think that's going to do it for this episode, but we'll be back in just a few days with our discussion of these chapters. Until then, I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know if you enjoyed these opening chapters as much as we did. Until next time, we greet you and say farewell.